Amen. Amen. Good morning. All right, I'm glad to be able to be here and share with you all. Um, Tori asked me to help uh, do a couple teachings as we're going through the book of Timothy. Last week, uh, Tori started on the book of Timothy in chapter 1, and we're going to kind of keep going on, uh, through that to the next section today. So if you guys have a Bible, we'll be looking at Timothy. Uh, also, we're looking a little bit at the book of Acts, and the verses should be on the screen here. Uh, you can also use your Bible apps on your phone, the Bible app, version. Uh, and you can look up the Well Austin on there, and it'll pull up the teaching notes. Or you can put in this link into your web browser, and it'll pull up those teaching notes also. So before I jump in, I wanted to let you all know that today is my anniversary with my wife, Lindy. Where's Lindy? Over there, yes. And uh, yeah, yeah. 18 years. We've been married 18 years. So... We are celebrating that, and um, I'm very thankful for my wife and for how she tire, tirelessly serves our family and how she faithfully follows my leadership. So we are celebrating Paul. Uh, where's Paul, the elder? He, he asked me this morning if I ever put my wife on the spot. So I said, she's like, no, he never really does that. But today I get to do that. So, um, so yeah, I'm, so I'm excited to share. I'm, I'm, we're just members of the church, so I'm not on staff here. I've been in ministry uh, previously, but um, I'm just sharing here as a, as a part of the body uh, with you guys as we go through the scripture. So let me read and um, we'll jump into it. Or let me pray and we'll jump into it. Uh, Lord, thank you for uh, this opportunity to be here and for the opportunity to read your word together and to reflect on it. Um, it's your word and uh, I pray, God, that you would speak today through it and use me to communicate the truths that are in these sections of scripture uh, use it to build the church here and use it to encourage our faith and to give us faith and to grow us and make us more like you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going we're gonna to backtrack a little bit and we're going to start off looking at Apostle Paul's life. Uh, Apostle Paul wrote this uh, section. He wrote 1 Timothy. And actually, part of this section, actually, this part of the Bible, there's, you could probably make two or three sermons out of this, and so I'm going to try to crunch it all together in one sermon, so hopefully it won't take too long, you won't be here uh, past lunch, but we will try to crunch it in together. And we're going to look at Paul, because he's going to talk about himself a little bit. And I wanted to look at his life briefly, and a lot of us here know about his life, but I think it's good to remember it, especially in light of this passage that we're going to read and so if we think about Paul, we got to remember that Paul, he used to be called Saul, right? His name was Saul before it was Paul. And he was a zealous Pharisee. He was a Jewish Pharisee. He was zealous for God's law, and he pursued righteousness at all costs. And he was, he was a devoted man of God according to the Jewish customs as a Pharisee. But he hated this group of people that at that time were called the way, Right? They didn't have the name Christians yet. They had this name called the way because this group of people followed the way of God, which was Jesus. Jesus was the way. He was the way of life. He was the way to, to God. That's what they claimed. And that's what they called themselves. So that was the name that they had received. And he hated these guys. He hated them with a passion because in his mind, they were leading people away from God. They were leading people to worship a man, not the creator God in his mind. They were perverting the Jewish faith and he was out to get them. I mean, he wanted to rid the earth of these people out of his zeal for who he thought God was. And so if we go all the way back to Acts chapter 8, 
If you have it, you can look in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. It's the first time in this section where we see Saul appear. And he's actually, is, he appears when Stephen is being stoned. So the first martyr of the church uh, is taking place. Stephen is being stoned for his faith. And in verse 8, verse 1, chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Saul was there and he approved of his execution. And it says, on that day there arose on a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, except for the apostles. And verse 3 it says, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So this guy was a, a pretty serious guy, right? I mean, if you can imagine the situation where someone's coming into your house, dragging you off, separating you from your children and putting in you in, into prison because of your faith and what you believe. We can imagine that some of these types of things are going on in the world today right now. There are some people who are very zealous for their faith and they are persecuting others in the name of their faith because they think it's the right thing to do according to their belief system. Paul was kind of like that kind of guy. He would have been kind of a religious fanatic as we see him today, kind of like a terrorizer or a terrorist as we would kind of define them today. He was that guy. And he says about himself in Acts 26, he's giving his testimony. In verse 9, he says, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in the synagogues, and I tried to make them blasphemy. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. All right, so we get a little picture of what's going on with this guy here. He was casting his vote against them, putting them to, de to death, grabbing them and jailing them, probably beating them. He said, I punished them in the synagogue. He's trying to make them blasphemy, actually recant their faith in Jesus to turn away from Jesus, and he was not only doing this locally, but he was chasing them down in cities all around, right? He's going to these cities, foreign cities, to grab them and get them. He wanted to stamp this thing out completely. This is the guy's mindset. He was not a nice guy, and he hated these folks. So in verse, or in, back in chapter 9, if we go back to Acts 9, we see that Paul, or Saul's conversion. In verse 9, chapter 9, verse 1, it says, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for the letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that, he, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. So Paul has this encounter with Jesus on this road to Damascus. And in a bright, blinding light, in an instant, he is confronted with the reality that he is persecuting God. The one he thinks he's trying to defend, he's actually persecuting, he's actually doing the opposite of everything he thought he was doing. Everything that he thought was good was actually evil. He was doing evil by persecuting Jesus and his church. 
and Jesus confronts him, and something happened to that man in that moment that changed, radically changed his life. A couple verses later, God sends this man, Ananias, to go and talk with Paul and tell him more about the message. And Ananias answers the Lord. He says, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. So Ananias doesn't really want to go talk to this guy. He's probably a little bit scared, a little bit nervous of Paul. And others in the church were very, they, they feared Saul at that time. And he says, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So God calls Paul and he chooses Paul to go and do this task to bring his message to the world around him. And it's not because Paul was a great guy and was this great follower of Jesus. Actually, he was quite the opposite. He was not a great guy. And he was doing great harm to the people of God. He was, I know a lot of us in this room have done maybe things we're not happy about in our lives that we may have a lot of uh, regret for, we may feel ashamed of. Maybe some of you all have spent some time in prison or maybe you should have spent time in prison for some of the things you've done. But probably few of us in this room have killed or had killed the children of God. Now, I know if someone was killing my children, I wouldn't be too gracious towards them. And when someone attacks our country, we're not very gracious towards them. But see, this guy was literally killing, you know, having them killed, or persecuting the children of God. And when I say children of God, we've got to think about this because there's a little bit of misunderstanding what it means to be a child of God. Sometimes I talk with people, and they'll say, everybody's a child of God. And that's not quite accurate. Everybody is a creation of God's. Everybody's made in the image of God, but not everybody is a child of God. You see, to become a child of God, you must be born of God, right? Jesus said you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you are born of God or you're born anew. And so there's some mysterious thing that takes place when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, when we trust in him that he died for our sins, the Bible says that we are regenerated, we are made new, and we are literally born of God. God comes into us, and we are adopted into his family, and his spirit regenerates us and gives us new life, and we actually we become part of God. It's a profound thing to think about. In John 14, Jesus said, On this day you will realize I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. That's a profound thing to think about. Jesus is in the God the Father, we are in Jesus. Jesus is in us. That means we are in God the Father, and the Father is in us because Jesus is in us, and it's all also through the Holy Spirit. So when we come to God and come to know God, a profound thing take, takes place. We become one with God, a un unity with God. And he says, all that believe in me become my children. So Paul was literally persecuting God. He, Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? Because Paul was persecuting the church, and the church were the people of God, children of God. So he was having them persecuted, he was having them killed, and he was doing this a direct offense against God himself. 
And what does God do? Right? We would think, man, this guy of all guys deserves radical judgment. This guy of all guys should be cast into hell or locked up for the rest of his life. I mean, if anyone attacked my family, man, put him in jail. Anyone attacks our country, man, we want, it, we want judgment real quick against those guys, right? But this is God's family. And what does God do? Something radically different. Now we'll go over to 1 Timothy. If you look at 1 Timothy, in verse 12, Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly and in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Other scriptures or translations will say of I am the worst. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, as the worst, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. God takes this guy who was a murderer, a Jesus hater, a terrorizer, who did not deserve to serve God or to be in God's kingdom. He was the worst of the worst in his own accord. I am the worst. And he says God did this as an example that if God can save Paul, that he can save anyone. Amen? If God can use this guy's Paul, Paul's life to transform the world, then God can use anyone's life to change the world. Paul's life was radically changed when he confronted the love and the grace and the mercy of God. It changed him so much that he went out to share this message with the whole world. He became the first and the greatest, outside of Jesus, missionary and bringing the gospel to different different cities and towns and nations, and planting churches. He writes one-third of the New Testament, all of it which is centered around the grace of God. Because Paul had experienced something that was very unique. He experienced a God who chose him, not because he deserved it, but because, merely because of God's kindness and grace. And he realized, if this grace is for me, then it's for everybody. It is for the whole world, no matter what you've done, where you've been, how bad you've been, things that you're extremely ashamed of, that there is grace and love and forgiveness that can cover it and not only cover it, but can make you a new person so that you can go and bring a great message of hope to many others in the world. And Paul's life is a testimony to that. When, we, when the scripture was read this morning in First. Corinthians, it talked about how Paul, I'm going, to, I'm going to look back here and read it, was the least of the apostles. 
in chapter 15, he says this. He says, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And this grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. And I found this really interesting, too, when you think about this. Paul, he wasn't with Jesus, right? You think the guys who should have done the greatest work for Jesus, wouldn't you think they should be the 12 who were with Jesus, right? Shouldn't they have been given the honor to be able to do the greatest work for Jesus? And yet God, in his strange ways, he doesn't choose one of those guys. He chooses this guy who wasn't even with Jesus, who, who doesn't even deserve to do this great work to do the greatest work the church has ever seen. And it, again, it highlights this reality that it's not our status and it's not our goodness that saves us or that causes God to use us. It is purely God's kindness, purely his kindness in our lives. And, if, and Paul, God wanted us to see that Paul was that example. Everything that happened to Paul in his life was an example and a testimony to the grace of God for our lives. But, you know, it's very difficult to accept this. And I don't know if you struggle with accepting the reality of God's love and grace for your life. But it can be very hard. I was with a guy um, a couple weeks ago when, in this apartment complex that we do some ministry at. And it's a transitional housing complex where people are coming off the street or they're coming out of jail and they're living in this place. And we do Bible study church there on Sunday nights. And I was talking with one of these guys at the end of the church time and everyone had kind of left and it was he and I and we were sitting there talking and he was bearing his soul to me, right? This guy had lived on the streets for a long time. He had mental illness. He had all kinds of problems in his life. And he was just bearing his soul and in the midst of bearing his soul and his problems and his difficulties, he literally cried out in the, from the depth of his heart, looking up towards God, saying, if God could forgive me from all that I've done, if he could just forgive me for all that I've done, I would tell the whole world about him. I wouldn't stop telling anybody about him. And I wanted so badly to convince him. I, I wanted to weep with him. I wanted to grieve with the agony that was in this man's soul and say, man, you are forgiven. You're forgiven. Christ has forgiven you. And I tried to tell him, but he couldn't hear it. His ears were plugged to it. He thought what he had done was too bad for God to forgive him. He thought his sin was too great for God to cover up. And I just, I left that meeting, I just felt so sorry for his state of his soul. And I also felt sorry that he could not understand God's love. But in what he was doing, I also realized that he was actually trivializing and minimizing the goodness and the love of God. When he said, I've done something too great for God to forgive me, he was saying that God was not powerful enough to forgive his sins. God was not great enough to cleanse his sins. And he was limiting God's 
power, and he was limiting the word of God, I believe, too. You know, I think about it like this sometimes. If we have, if we think about our sin and the things we've done that, we, that weigh a bur- burden on our lives, and we think about it and we can, we can have the heavy weight, some of us can. And some of these things can haunt us, actually. They can haunt us. And sometimes even as you get older in life, the things you did when you were younger, you have greater and greater regret for. And that sin can have a greater, greater effect on your life. And it can feel heavy. And sometimes we plug our ears. We don't want to listen to it. Or we try to numb ourselves out and do things that distract ourselves from it. We just don't want to deal with it. And it can feel great and it can feel really big. Now imagine if your sin was as big as the Titanic, right? Just a gigantic ship, right? Just this huge weight. But listen. If our sin is like the Titanic, God's love and grace is like the ocean. His grace is like the ocean. And when you zoom back from the Titanic, you see it becomes a little teeny speck. And this great grand ocean just washes it over, sinks it to the depths of the earth, rids it. And God's love, according to the word of God and displayed in the Apostle Paul, is an ocean of grace. I mean, it is so grand and great that it can take any one of our sins and just wash it away because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. And we think about Jesus Christ on the cross. We think about a man who was hung on the cross, a perfect lamb of God. And the scriptures tell us that the entire weight of sin and the entire weight of the consequences of sin were nailed upon Jesus Christ. The entire weight of all sin for all time, past, present, and future, were nailed upon him, and it was so heavy and so agonizing that it took the Son of God, the living God, and it buried him in the grave for three days. But he didn't stay in the grave. Three days later, he, in, in great power, he overcame sin, he overcame death, and he resurrected. And he said, you know what reigns now? It's not death, it's life. Amen? It's life that reigns. And forgiveness reigns. And grace reigns. And love reigns. And the power of God reigns to give all men and women new life to live a new way. And Apostle Paul is going to be an example of that to the whole world for all of time. And many other men and women are examples of that grace also. Life reigns in Christ, not death. Because sin could not hold Jesus down. And you know what that does to a man or a woman who really grabs a hold of that? It leads them to worship Jesus. It leads them to say something like, the king of kings, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever, amen. Because when you understand the reality of God's grace and the reality of God's love and how much he forgives us, what can we do but worship and celebrate and say, God, thank you, God, thank you, God, thank you for what you've done for my life. Because I don't deserve it. I've done nothing to deserve it. And it's all your grace and mercy. Another guy who lives at this apartment complex that I go to, 
He's a neat guy. He's been on the street for a long time. He was a heroin addict, and he's got a bunch of bullet holes on him. He's got a pretty wild story because he was trying to kill a guy, and he got shot up for it. Got tattoos all over him. And maybe three years ago, he was confronted with a God who forgives him. And he told me, he said, Todd, you know, I was so desperate, in such desperate need for forgiveness, I thought I could never, ever get it for the things that I had done. I thought I was too bad and that God could never forgive me or I would never be forgiven. But then I heard this message of a God who forgave me through Jesus and I accepted him in my life and he changed my life and now I'm, I'm, I'm trying to learn to live a new life because of what Jesus did for me. And he said this to me, I'll never forget this. He said, you know what? If, if I get to make it to heaven because of what Jesus did for me, if I can just be a street cleaner, I'll be happy. <laughs> and he said, like, I don't have to do anything great. If I can just, just, just sweep the streets, if I can just get there and Jesus is really going to let me there, then I mean, he's like, I can't even believe that he would even let me do that. Isn't that cool perspective to have? We live in an age where we're so filled up with, oh, I have these rights and those rights and God's going to give me this and God give me that. And this guy is so humble and so broken, just, oh, if he would just let me squeak in and clean the streets. He was confronted with Jesus. And you know what that man does? He worships Jesus and he thanks him day in and day out for the grace he's given him to have forgiveness and have a new life. Even though that man struggles with drug addiction, he struggles with mental illness, but he knows that there's grace in God, and that grace is for you, men and women, too. Paul sets himself as an example in this section, and then he turns his attention to Timothy, okay? And this is sermon part two now. So that was sermon one. Sermon part two. I'll try to tie them together, but I won't promise you anything. Okay, in verse 18, he says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child. So they had a very close relationship. In accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Or another version will say, fight the good fight. Holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may not learn to blasphemy. Okay. This is a serious, I'm charging you, Timothy, this thing. I'm in charge and entrust a charge to you, Timothy. You've been called to ministry. There have been some type of prophecies about him. We don't know what those are exactly. But he charges them this, that you would wage the good warfare, holding on to a faith and a good conscience. Wage the good warfare, fight the good battle, hold on to faith and a good conscience. And I want to hit on this as kind of as the last part as I wrap up. I think what he's, he's hitting on here, you guys, is that the Christian life is a battle, all right? It's a battle. It's a war. It's a fight. It's a struggle. It's a wrestling. 
If someone has promised you that you're going to become Christian and your life is going to be very easy for the rest of your life, please, I'm sorry that they told you that because that is not the case. Actually, the Christian life is very difficult. It's hard. It's good because God is with you and his power and strength and comfort is with you, but it's not easy. It's not a spectator's sport, nor is it a good to be consumed. All right? Our culture brainwashes us in a consumer mindset. We are consumers. United States, America are full of a lot of consumers, right? And we also are spectators. We love the big screen. We love the movies. We love watching the game. But getting involved in it, I don't know. We'd rather consume it. Even church can do this for us. Oh, I'm going to come to church. I'm going to spectate. I'm going to get fed by the person up front in the band and then go away and criticize it if it didn't really feed me well enough or if the band wasn't quite good enough leading me into worship. Please know, side note here, please know that your spiritual life should never be based on Sunday. We fight this fight day in and day out, and our food is connecting with God every single day in his word and in prayer. Sundays, it's a treat, okay? It's a bonus, right? It's not the thing that's supposed to feed you for your whole week. If you think that, you're going to fade out in your spiritual life, and you're also going to be very critical of the church because it's not going to meet all your needs, we are in a fight. In a fight, you need to be prepared. You need to train. You need to be regularly engaged with God. And that's a day-in and day-out battle. Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 that our fight is not against flesh and blood. It's against spiritual principalities and powers in the heavenly realms. He says that we, there's some wild cosmic battle going on between angelic forces and demonic forces, between good and between evil, and it's happening, and we're in the middle of it, and this spiritual world is manifesting itself in a material world, and we are somehow in this great cosmic struggle that's going on. And this cosmic struggle... There's, there are forces that literally hate your life. There are demonic things that hate the church. Actually, Paul was actually serving Satan, not God in those times, you know. And there are demonic things that hate the church and hate your life and would love to just ruin and ravage this church and ruin and ravage your lives. And so Paul says, fight, fight, wage it, wage the warfare. And there are tons of things in this life that we have to battle against. And I think it gets harder maybe even as you get older because when you're younger and you come to Christ, you have zeal and energy and strength. When you get older, you get a little bit more tired. Amen, all the older people out there? Right. I'm getting a little gray. I'm catching up. You, you get beat up a little bit more as you, time goes on and your faith gets challenged more and more and more and it's hard. It's not always easy. It's hard to believe truth sometimes about who God is and who God says you are when there's so many lies in the world trying to speak those into your life. Culture is giving all kinds of lies. But also we are raised up in families and though they do the best they can, sometimes they can sow things into our lives that go deep, but they're not God's word. They're lies. You're no good. You're never going to make it. You're never going to measure up. 
This is not God's word to you. We have to fight to put God's word in us, the truth of God's word in us, and not listen to the lies of the devil that come at us all the time. It's a fight to resist temptation. It's a fight not to give in to the lust of the flesh. There's all kinds of temptations all around us, and it's, it's a fight to not give in to those. Paul says, make no provisions for the flesh. Wow, that's tough. That's a fight. It's a fight to believe in God's goodness when you're in the midst of very hard circumstances. When you see bad things happening around you to believe God is really good and he loves me and he's for me, that's hard. It's a fight. It's a fight not to give up and to keep trusting in God. It's a fight not to isolate yourself when you just are feeling bad and down and feeling like a failure and you want to kind of give up. But staying committed to Christian community, it's a fight. It's a fight to forgive those who hurt you and wrong you. Amen? It's hard. But Jesus commands us to forgive. It's a fight to obey his commands, to love one another, to love those who seem unlovable. It's hard. It's hard to be in Christian community. It's hard to be in community at all. It's a battle, but we believe it's good. We believe God's word. We hold on to it, and we have to prepare ourselves. We have to train we will read later in Timothy in chapter 4 where Paul will say that training for physical activity is good, but training for godliness has great value for this life and the life to come. So we have to be ready to engage God daily and know that fight is normal. It's going to be there. Don't think that God doesn't love you because hard things come. It's part of the reality of the Christian life. If we don't fight, we're going to get taken out. I mean, imagine if you were going to see a fight in the ring, and you're sitting as a spectator, right? And they had a match. It was a good match. You're excited about it. Your guy won. And after that match, they say, okay, we're having another match. And actually, you, sitting there on the ring, you're in the fight. You're like, wait a second. I'm not fighting today. You're like, no, actually, you are fighting today. And you step into that ring unprepared, untrained, unready. You are going down fast, right? KO, man. You're done. Because you weren't ready for it. And I'll tell you, if you're not ready for the reality of what Satan's going to bring to you, you're going to get side-clocked. And you're going to get hit unexpectedly, sucker-punched. We have to be ready. That's why he charges him. Wage the good warfare. Fight the good fight. Hold on to faith and a good conscience. This world wants to shipwreck your faith. It wants to take your faith away from you. Oh, Jesus isn't the only way to God. Come on. Oh, the Bible, the authority of God, come on. Take the faith away, dilute it, dissolve it. It wants to take away. You've got to hold on to faith. And he says a good conscience. There's so many things that take a pierce and take away our conscience. You know, our conscience is supposed to keep us from sin. It's supposed to help us to discern what's right and wrong. And as Tori mentioned this last week in 1 Timothy in chapter 4, it actually says that we can sear our conscience we can, we can um, sever it or numb it if we don't listen to it over time. So the voice of our conscience can get quieter and quieter and quieter. It's actually, also, the voice of the Holy Spirit can be just shushed to the side if we don't listen to it. We start violating it enough, going our own way, making little excuses, and it ceases to warn us. Start justifying ourselves, and next thing we know, we're, our faith is shipwrecked. It's shipwrecked. We give little, it starts with just little things. Oh, it's not a big deal just to watch a little bit of pornography. You know, it's not, who's it hurting? You know, come on. It's not that big of a deal. 
Oh, it's not a big deal, you know. Just not, I don't have to really be involved in Christian fellowship. Come on, I got a relationship with God, you know. It's just, I don't have to go to that community group thing anyways. It's kind of boring, so. Oh, just a little thing. Oh, you know, drinking a few beers is not too big of a deal, you know, here and there. You know, I don't, it's not a big deal. You know, date around different girls. and I mean, sex before marriage, come on, that's old school, out of date. These little things start seeping into us, and pretty soon our conscience is, is just so deadened that we just lose faith and we're just gone. The, the sad reality, I'm sorry to say this, the sad reality is that many of you all in this room aren't going to make it in your faith. I hope that doesn't happen. And this, the sad reality of our world is that one in two marriages are shipwrecked. I'm sorry, that's a sad reality. Right? I hope the well does not fall into that. I hope you guys are 100%. But the reality is, one in two. You're going to make it 18 years? I got a lot more to go. 18 years have been hard to get there. But we start to deaden our conscience pretty soon. You know what? You're not just going to mess your life up. You're going to mess your family's life up. You're going to mess your kid's life up. And you're going to mess their kid's life up. And that's generational. You divorce, that has an impact on your kids and has an impact on their kids and how they raise their kids. It has deep impact. And if we're not serious about fighting this fight and being strong and keeping our conscience clean and clear, you know what? It can just wreck us. And I know from experience with friends, I had a good friend. Actually, he was my pastor, my wife and I's pastor. Actually, 20, now 18 years ago today, he married us. He was my pastor, a good friend. I worked with him. I actually planted a church with him in Amsterdam. He was a lead pastor. He was a very gifted man, very gifted communicator, and impacted a lot of people's lives. You know what? Somewhere down the line, he began to lose his grip on God. Somewhere down the line, he began to make excuses and th think that things were okay that shouldn't be okay, and he wasn't telling anybody about them. And you know, one year into a church plant where he led 40 people from the United States overseas, he thought it was a good idea to have an affair with a woman over there. He thought it was okay to just send little text messages to this, late, this girl that he had met and not tell his wife about it until it got so out of hand that he just said, you know what, I'm just going to go for it. I'm going to just give everything up so I can just get this woman because she's going to make me so happy and she's going to satisfy my life because he was deceived by a great lie, a great lie. And he was willing to forsake his wife his four children, one of which was adopted, one of which had a mental handicap, his church and church plant and ministry, everything to get this woman. You are out of your mind, man. I mean, I remember talking to him, man, you are out of your mind. He couldn't see it. He was completely blind to it. You know what? Unfortunately, he is divorced and he's not in ministry and he's not following the Lord. That is one of many, 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 many stories. And so I'm just telling you this to be a little bit sober, sober, sober to you and to hope that you will not, that you will take God's word seriously. What Paul had to do in this situation is when these guys had shipwrecked their faith, he had to actually ask them to leave the church. It was church discipline. He handed them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. That is, in a sense, he was saying, all right, if this is what you want, you can't be part in the church and part outside. If that's what you want, you have to go to it. You have to leave. And he handed them over to the world that hopefully 
they would repent and come back. That is the purpose of church discipline. It's in love. It's it's very painful process to say, you know what, you can't be here anymore. You have to go. But we love you, and you're welcome back, but you can't live that life and this life. There's a whole other teaching on church discipline. I'm not going to go into it. But I do want to say this. It is an extremely excruciating painful process for any leader to ever have to ask someone to leave their church under church discipline. It is heart-wrenching. It is deeply painful. And I pray to God that none of you would ever, ever have to put Tory or the elders through that. You know, I just am speaking as a member of this church. If you don't want to follow Christ, just go. Don't come into this church and shipwreck other people's faith because you are weak in your faith and your conscience is dead and seared. It is better to leave because it is very hurtful to a church and very, very hard to go through that as a community. I am not on staff, so I can say anything I want up here. (laughs) So... Let me wrap up my talk. (laughs) Let me wrap up. How do we restore our conscience if it has become stained or if we violated it? Because we all do at some point or another. We all do this. And there's great hope for us In Proverbs 28, 13 and 14, it says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall fall into calamity. There's a promise here, but if we conceal our, our, our wrongs, if we conceal and hide these this, this sin in our life, it will wreck us. But if we fear the Lord and we confess it and we bring it out and bring it into the light, there is great mercy and grace that can wash it clean. The great mercy that can wash that t- Titanic away can wash all of our sins away the first time we come to him and every time after that too. And when you hear God, if you hear in God's voice, it's prompting your heart that you know there's certain things in your heart that you've kind of been, been maybe moving away from faith in Christ or your, your certain sins that are kind of starting to take root in your life. If you hear God pricking you or the conscience starting to bring that up, the best thing to do is just bring it into the light. Tell someone about it. Tell a close friend or a pastor or one of the elders. Just bring it out into the light so that that power can be removed and your conscience can be cleansed. And they can pray for you in the name of Jesus that you can have a renewed conscience. There's nothing better than having a clean conscience. Amen? Man, does it feel good to just have all, you're not hiding anything. All your junk is on the table and you're just like, man, this is it. And you want, and you find mercy. That is beautiful. And powerful. And as we learn from Paul, no sin is too great for God to clean. He can cleanse your sins. Whether you've been a Christian for a long time or whether you're here for the first time, Jesus Christ has a power to forgive and cleanse your sin and renew your heart and renew your conscience and make you new today on this day. I want to pray 
And um, then the band's going to come up, and we'll, I'll lead you all a little bit in communion. But let's pray here. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your love, and thank you so much for your grace, and thank you so much for the Apostle Paul and the testimony that you chose this guy who didn't deserve to show us that we could have grace and forgiveness even though none of us deserves it. That you showed us through his life that there is forgiveness for even the worst of them. <clears throat> 